You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. As Ukraine girds for Russia's spring offensive, the United Nations Secretary General is calling out Russia for the massive suffering, as he put it, and devastation it has brought to Ukraine. Antonio Gutierrez telling the Security Council, quote, we must find a way forward and act now as we have done before to stop the slide toward chaos and conflict. Now, Guterres is speaking as Russia's top diplomat sits essentially across the table. Sergei Lavrov in town to lead the Security Council. Its presidency is up in the rotation here, making us all wonder, how does this work again? And Lavrov was having none of it. Here he is speaking through a translator. Let's call a spade a spade. Nobody allowed the Western minority to speak on behalf of all of humankind. There is a need to be polite and to respect all members of the international community. By imposing the rules-based order, it sponsors arrogantly reject a key principle of the Charter of the United Nations, namely sovereign equality of states. Lavrov chose the, quote, defense of the U.N. charter as the topic for today's session. Pretty rich considering everything that has happened in the last year. And that's where we begin our conversation with Kurt Volker. I'm glad to say back with us, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, former special representative for Ukraine negotiations. Ambassador, welcome. What is the point of the U.N. when Russia continues its role on the Security Council like this? I realize it's got a veto. The general secretary's words seem to carry so little weight. What's the point of this exercise? Well, uh, when the U.N. was founded, there was a belief that the members of the Security Council shared an objective in uh, maintaining international peace and security. Um, this was Russia or the Soviet Union at the time having uh, been one of the victors over fascism and World War II and nationalist China, not the current communist government of China. Uh, yeah. This has been completely destroyed. We now have a Security Council where two of the members are fundamentally against international peace and security, and they are exploiting the system. So we can't take any of this very seriously anymore, and we have to – no one wants to destroy the U.N. No one wants to see the organization as a whole go away. We'd rather see good governments back in place. That took Ambassador, I'm having such a hard time hearing you. I think it might be worth uh, reconnecting. If you could just hang on two seconds, we're going to try to do that, get back on a better line here and – Please listen to it this time so we can understand what the ambassador is telling us here. This is a critical moment as we are potentially weeks, if not days ahead of this springtime offensive. And Ukraine is talking about a counteroffensive, which is why Dmitry Kaleba once again today put in the ask for fighter jets. We've been hearing this for days, and it doesn't seem that following the meeting of the contact group in Germany that that's about to happen. Though M1 tanks have made their way or are about to make their way to Ukraine, according to the administration, and many are wondering what is left here, what needs to be done. With China potentially speaking the truth out loud, you see this story on the terminal, the ambassador or special envoy, I guess they call him to France, uh, Lu Shea, saying in an interview that former Soviet nations do not have sovereign status which was probably a surprise to the people of Estonia and Lithuania. Uh, but Beijing is walking those comments back. And we'll talk about that as well with Ambassador Kurt Volker, who's back on the line now. Thanks for putting up with us, Ambassador. I hope uh, we can continue our conversation here. 
Get back to where we started with Russia's role in the Security Council and the purpose of this meeting. Yeah, I think that no one wants to see the U.N. destroyed. So people don't want to give up on the U.N. But we are living through a situation where two of the members of the Security Council who have a veto are fundamentally not in favor of international peace and security anymore. Uh, Certainly Russia has deliberately attacked its neighbor, whose territory it recognizes and who is a member of the United Nations. So uh, what's going on now is a bit of a farce, uh, and and frankly, Lavrov really doesn't have any role in Russian policymaking anymore, Hmm. if he ever did. But uh, we go through this because we don't want to see the institution destroyed. Well, that's a fair answer here. In terms of reality, Ambassador, we don't know exactly when Russia is going to ring the bell, and I suspect there's no bell to ring here uh, as we walk up uh, on a spring offensive. Is Ukraine ready for this? Uh, Ukraine is getting ready. They they are still trying to gather as much ammunition and equipment and trained personnel and logistical support as possible and wait for the weather to be favorable because they have to let the ground dry out so armored vehicles and, and tracked vehicles can roll more easily. Uh, they will launch a spring offensive. I think we're quite sure of that. Yeah. And it appears that Russia is in very bad shape in terms of its defenses. So we, we are cautiously optimistic that Ukraine is going to get some of its territory back. They're still asking and made the ask again today uh, from uh, Dmitry Kuleba for more, as they say, Western fighter jets. I guess they mean F-16s still by that. Yeah. It doesn't appear they're going to get them, at least from the U.S. ambassador. Should a European nation hand them well, over? Uh, for the Western jets, uh, what we've heard is that uh, it will take a significant amount of time to put in place the logistical support to keep them flying, Hmm. uh, as well as training the pilots and the crews. Something that we could have started on a year ago and we didn't, uh, but now we've lost that year and it would be difficult to get them those things now. Some NATO allies have provided them MiG-29s. They probably Mm -hmm. have a full squadron of MiG-29s provided by NATO allies now, Slovakia and Poland among them. And there may be other types of aircraft that are not as complicated as something like an F-16, Uh, One that I think could be very useful is a ground attack aircraft like an A-10, which are relatively simple to fly and which Mm -hmm. uh, we've mothballed in the U.S. and could easily declare an excess defense article. That's pretty interesting to consider. Uh, The strategy behind F-16s was questioned on this program uh, last week, suggesting that, you know, this is a guerrilla style war that Ukraine is trying to fight and it should not try to duplicate the Air Force of of the U.S., for instance, uh, in doing so, those M1 tanks we sent though get in the in the mix. The Leopard tanks from Germany get in the mix. You put you, uh, A10s in the air, and that that could be a game changing scenario, right? It, it could be, and I, I would hesitate to call this a guerrilla style thing. The, the Russians have all the uh, modern equipment, well, relatively modern equipment, in principle. They've seen a lot of it destroyed, but they're dealing with with guided missiles. They're dealing with artillery, they're dealing with tanks, APCs, aircraft, helicopters, submarines, and the Ukrainians are gather, they need to gather a combined armed offensive capability, which is tanks and armored fighting vehicles, air cover, air defenses, and they need to do so and develop speed as they uh, attack the Russian forces to try to overcome those initial defenses. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to require bridging equipment, demining equipment, things like that. So I wouldn't describe that as a guerrilla thing. I would describe that as getting the right kinds of equipment for maneuver warfare that they can probably do better than the Russians who've seen a lot of their capability destroyed. But they need that help from us, both in the equipment and in the training. Talking with Kurt Volker, the former special representative for Ukraine negotiations and former U.S. ambassador to NATO. What's your thought of these uh, remarks from the Chinese diplomat Lu She, uh, ambassador to France, uh, talking about uh, <laughs> former Soviet nations and what he sees as their lack of sovereign status. Isn't that exactly what Vladimir Putin probably says when he gets together with President Xi? It probably is. Um, and it's really concerning because I understand that China wants its ambassadors to be out there as so-called wolf warriors, just being assertive and provocative and pushing Chinese nationalist agenda. But what he said here is both factually wrong and very destructive of an international system that China relies upon. That Chinese that? policy has always been to support sovereignty. 
of ind- independent member states. And he, he's completely wrong when he says they're, they're not, you know, uh, accepted by any treaty. That uh, Russia has treaties with some of these countries. They have recognized borders. They have been admitted to the United Nations with formal legal documentation. What's interesting is that Russia never applied to join the United Nations. They're coasting on the fact that the, U- that the Soviet Union had been a member Mm-hmm. But Russia never converted its status, whereas these other countries actually did. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, it does seem to be a case of maybe the truth uh, uh, creeping out as the Chinese embassy in France removes the transcript from that interview that Luce yeah. uh, conducted with LCI. Is is that a better indicator of where Beijing actually stands on this? I think so. Uh, they don't like to contradict themselves or their diplomats. They don't want to say he was wrong. But the yeah. fact is, he was wrong. And I think taking it down is an indicator of that. And I think that if you start playing through the implications, like you're, you're now saying that Kazakhstan, a neighbor of China and a vast one in which China has huge interests, hmm. that that should actually be part of Russia. I don't <laughs> think the Chinese mean that. No, I don't think so. The race to get foreign nationals out of Sudan uh, continues here as violence escalates, Ambassador. We know that special operations forces from the U.S. evacuated the American embassy over the weekend, but more than 16,000 American citizens remain in the country. I realize some of them are dual citizens, but the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, uh, speaking to ABC today, said continued evacuations are just not safe right now. Here's how he put it. We still have military forces uh, pre-positioned in the region, uh, ready to respond if need be. Uh, but right now, it's not very safe to try to run some larger evacuation, either out of a nearby uh, airbase or, or even uh, just uh, just through rotary lift like we did the other night. Uh, because the fighting is so intense. Ambassador, does that need to continue to be reevaluated? And, and why won't the administration call this a civil war? Um, I, I think, first off, on the civil war question, um, these are two uh, factions within the military fighting each other yep. without really having the populace behind them on either side. Gotcha. So I think this is not an internal civil war that way. Mm-hmm. As far as getting Americans out, I think it's important to remember one distinction uh, between the situation in Afghanistan and the situation now in Sudan. In Afghanistan, we were holding the security environment together, and we pulled out, and a lot of Americans and a lot of people who have been working with the United States got left behind. That, I think, we could and should have done something about preventively. The case in Sudan, this is internal fighting that has erupted between these two warring factions within the military. And we are not on the ground there. We have not controlled the security situation in this way, the way that we did in Afghanistan. And these citizens, whether they're dual citizens or not, doesn't matter. They're American citizens. Um, They have had an opportunity to leave. They still deserve an opportunity to leave. We should be evaluating what our options are, whether we can find some way to help people get out to help extract them. But I don't think we share the responsibility for their being in peril now the way that we did in Afghanistan. Speaking on MSNBC earlier today, John Kirby again says the U.S. military is providing overwatch through unmanned systems, unmanned aerial systems of that convoy so we can keep tabs on it. We're going to be positioning naval assets, he says, in the Red Sea in case they're going to be needed to help Americans that want to leave. Is this purely... Uh, an evacuation exercise then, Ambassador, or does the U.S. have other concerns in Sudan? Um, well, first off, I think it is all about evacuation. We want to have forces in place where if there is a decision by the president to go into Sudan in order to get Americans out, you have enough capability, combat capability, to protect everybody while you do that. So I think that's what all of that is about. I don't think it's about a larger goal. What we do have to worry about uh, as we've seen in this part of Africa, uh, Sudan, Eritrea, um, uh, Djibouti, um, the risk that terrorist groups take advantage of a chaotic situation, get their hands on a lot of weapons, and then strengthen terrorist organizations like ISIS or uh, others that exist in the Sahel and North Africa. So that, I think, will be something that we'll be watching over time to see, do, do does this security situation stabilize? And do people reestablish some sense of security, mm-hmm. or do you now have a lot of loose weapons and a lot of ungoverned area? 
I just ask you these uh, very basic questions, Ambassador, because if a lot of a lot of Americans are just tuning into this. Say, wait a minute, Sudan, is this something I should be worried about? How would you answer them? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, Sudan is one of the largest countries in Africa. Uh, it's uh, touching Egypt in the north, and it's going into sub-Saharan Africa well in the south. Yeah. Uh, it's got an ethnic divide. It's got a religious Christian divide. It's got um, borders with some other key important countries, the Horn of Africa in the east and, and uh, Libya and Chad in the West. Uh, so it's touching everything, and the spillover potential of weapons and of radical groups from there yeah. could be significant. So keep eyes on it. The Honorable Kurt Volker, great to have you, Ambassador, and I hope that we'll talk again soon here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll assemble our panel next. Stay right where you are on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You connect the dots in our conversation with Kurt Volker there. There's a lot to worry about from Ukraine to the Russia-China axis now Sudan, add North Korea, go ahead, put Iran on the list. There's not a theater on the planet that does not bring some cause for concern to this administration. And here we are on the eve of what is expected to be Joe Biden's announcement for a re-election campaign. We assemble our panel for their take on all of it. Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano is here, joined today by Lisa Camuso-Miller. Republican strategist, former RNC communications director, partner at Reset Public Affairs. Great to have both of you here. Jeannie, if you're Joe Biden, you go to bed tonight, get ready to go to bed up there in the White House residence, and you're thinking about all this stuff. Is it time to rewrite the announcement for tomorrow? I mean, we talk so much about domestic politics driving the campaign, the culture wars, Trump versus DeSantis. And it's, in fact, geopolitics that seem to be consuming the day at the White House, no? It is. And, and there's so much interconnectedness as well. I mean, you just look at the big battle over the debt ceiling, intimately mm. connected with geopolitics. And, you know, we all saw Hillary Clinton's op-ed in The New York Times talking about that connection. So, you know, he's going to be hard pressed to ignore, not that he would, the geopolitical option or aspect. But I don't think he will rewrite. I think he is going to, if he does release this video tomorrow, as we are hearing he might, I think he is going to be asking voters to keep him on despite all the challenges and because of all the challenges and let him finish the job that he started. And he's going to try to contrast himself with Donald Trump and the Republicans. I think, mm -hmm. you know, if there's no Joe Biden in my mind without Donald Trump, and I think they are banking on a Trump primary win here so that they can juxtapose Biden to him and he can try to relive 2020 all over again. Putting the announcement aside for just a moment here, Lisa, what do voters think about the Biden administration when it comes to foreign affairs, to geopolitics? You'll hear Trump ding him a lot on China, for instance, and he'll say that Putin never would have gone into Ukraine if I was still president. But are people thinking globally as, as they consider politics right now? You know, I think it's hard for them to really understand why 
uh, geopolitics affects the way American politics works and what the interplay is between the two, Joe. I'm actually, um, you know, the, the more we talk about it, I mean, it is so relevant, it's so important, but so many of the voters that will be really the the core set of who we're trying to attract um, on both sides of the aisle are folks that are really focused on pocketbook issues. And so I think that, you know, if they're looking at how they're doing at home and they're doing well, well, mm -hmm. then let's make sure that the, the globe is stable. But if at home is unstable, uh, then you have to believe that the voters are saying, like, let's get things right here in the U.S. before we do anything to support the outside. I know that that is a very much of a, uh, you know, sort of a nationalist approach and, and understanding. But I really do think that people that are looking for that support and that that help at home in the home budget, they say, you know, my my government and my president really ought to serve me first. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, part of the the difficulty in for both Biden, Trump and whoever ends up being the nominee on the Republican side um, to figure out a way to, to weave the two together and help voters understand why a stable Europe, a stable globe means a stable U.S. So how does that present itself here in the campaign, Jeannie, we've talked a lot about funding for Ukraine as being a real point of friction between the Hawks and, in many cases, the Freedom Caucus uh, in, in the U.S. House here. Kevin McCarthy says no blank checks and so forth, but it's really the rank and file that seem to be debating this. But then there are the American people. Donald Trump, uh, there, there was a guy named Tucker Carlson who used to be on TV. He would bring it up a lot as well. What are voters going to think about this when you see, uh, you know, Joe Biden finally on a debate stage with a Republican nominee? Who is this Tucker fellow you keep used talking to be about? On, Trump there used yeah. to be on. Um, you know, I, I do think we know that our, our elections at the presidential level, for better or for worse, are usually played out on domestic issues. But again, it is very, very difficult to divorce them today. I mean, you don't even have to look at polls or look at data. The American public still, by and large, supports the war in Ukraine. They are opposed to the Russian invasion just to look at one issue. But at the same token and by the same token to Lisa's point, some, and it, this, you, there will be an increasingly large number as this war drags on, start to say, what more can we do after the billions of dollars spent? We have challenges here at home that have to be addressed. So it's a very difficult line for an incumbent president to walk. And I think we're going to hear Joe Biden trying to walk that line, but again, really hard. And the instability is something, and you, the litany of issues we are facing around the world, you couple those with the one at home and people are disenchanted. We're looking at 75% of Americans think we're headed in the wrong direction. Mm. That instability makes it awfully hard for an incumbent, which again is why Joe Biden wants to run against somebody who's more unpopular than he is. You know, the Wall Street Journal poll the other day was telling he beats Trump. He doesn't necessarily beat a generic Republican or Ron DeSantis. That is a telling note, even though it's still early. Spending time with our panel, Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camuso-Miller. When it comes to handling China, this is like one of the frequently billed as one of the few bipartisan issues out there, Lisa. And the stories today are tough again here. You've got the special envoy, uh, China's ambassador to France, essentially, uh, talking about former Soviet nations without sovereign status, frequent references to the China-Russia axis does Joe Biden, Joe Biden start need to start talking tougher? We hear a lot about competition, but not conflict. How about we start calling them out? Well, I mean, the White House, what's interesting to me, Joe, about all of this is that, we, you know, we talk about tomorrow, we talk about the president, we talk about how he's going to be positioning and messaging. The White House today, in addition to all of the other pieces that we've discussed, China and otherwise, the White House is saying that the messaging coming out of the White House has been consistently since January focused in on issues that are relevant to the re-election campaign. So whether it's China, whether it's talking tough on Russia, whether it's whatever the messaging is, the White House is trying to uh, present a, a position where it doesn't matter. I feel like they're walking back a little bit on what could happen tomorrow even because hmm. they're saying we're already engaged in a campaign. So whether it's hard messaging on China, Russia, whether it's stepping out on, on other issues, the White House absolutely, it, the, the impetus is on them to prove that they are strong, they're tough, they're right, and they're doing everything not only for the U.S., but also to make geopolitics in China and Russia 
the dangerous language that we're hearing today um, be consistent with what it is they're going to be using as a platform mm-hmm. going forward. Jeannie, I know you didn't love the idea of Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan at the time she did. I don't think you love the idea of Kevin McCarthy meeting with President Tsai when he did. But is that exactly the type of thing that this administration should be supporting to sort of draw a line here to, to make a contrast before this becomes a debate in the presidential cycle? You know, and I don't think so. You know, one of my opposition to both of those is the fact that I'm not sure what we get out of it. And so I think what we really need is we need to have communication with China. And the very scary part of the whole balloon episode, which seems eons ago now, Mm -hmm. was the fact that that was cut off. So I think the administration needs to keep talking to China about what we have in common and need to work on, including climate change, including human rights, including the economy, including IP the litany of lists, the litany of issues, rather. And so I'm not sure what we get out of those congressional visits, and I know they are very popular, so I'm a lone wolf out there. But speaking Mm. of wolves, Joe, can I just Mm. say, Lou, this wolf warrior that the ambassador talked about, Uh 2019, he accused Canada of white supremacy for calling for the release of two Canadians. In August, he suggested the Taiwanese people would need to be re-educated following a takeover. I think China needs to recall their wolf back to Beijing at this point. <laughs> he has, you know, I think that's what needs to happen. And I you know, f- feel a little bit for Macron, which I don't say often. There's a new opening in uh, nightly cable news, uh, Lisa. Maybe he should apply. Let's hope not. Although uh, there is a lot of like very early speculation, Joe. The news just came, what, two hours ago that Tucker was out at Fox. Right. Don Lemon was out before that at CNN. <laughs> right. um, but there's a lot of speculation today about how as much as we, you know, pers- people's perspective is that you know, Tucker out is a good thing, we could very well be in a situation where the devil we know is better than the one we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listen, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing because somebody's going to dream up something. And as far as Tucker goes, well, you know, I, I'm not sure he needs a cable network to appeal to his base. Maybe he'll run. Our panel in place, and we'll have a lot more with Lisa Camusa Miller and Jeannie Shanzano uh, coming up. There's new polling data uh, on the Republican primary. And also, you'd be shocked still at how few Americans want Donald Trump and Joe Biden to each run for re-election. We'll get to that next. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Quite a headline. A majority of Americans do not want either Joe Biden or Donald Trump to run for re-election. But we're still doing this, and the numbers, when you look inside each contest, are pretty fascinating. The latest from NBC News. Their poll showing two-thirds of Republican primary voters say they stand behind former President Trump. Two-thirds. Donald Trump now leading Ron DeSantis in this poll, 46 to 31 percent. Ron DeSantis, of course, the governor of Florida, on an Asian swing right now, touring or at least visiting four nations, including Japan, where, of course, he was asked about Donald Trump and the polling data. His response has not been sheared by many who were watching. I'm not I'm not a candidate, so we'll see if uh, if and when that changes. Okay, Donald Trump carries the day again as we reassemble our panel for their take on the field here. Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst, joined by Republican strategist Lisa Camuso Miller, former RNC communications director, now with Reset Public Affairs. Uh, Lisa, what's your thought here? It seems at least the criticism is every time Ron DeSantis is given an opportunity served up on a platter, he doesn't seem to take it when it goes after when it comes to going after Donald Trump. Uh, Yeah, the governor's had a rough couple of weeks, Joe. There's no question about that. I mean, really, this is his first time entering into the national stage. Mm -hmm. He's under a tremendous amount of pressure, just reelected governor of Florida and being asked every single day about running for president. (laughs) I mean, I remember watching this with Christie with Chris Christie when he was doing the same. It just been reelected, was very Mm -hmm. popular amongst Republican voters and asked all the time. 
I cannot imagine what the incoming must be like. Plus, he's fighting against Disney. Plus, he's traveling to uh, Asia. I mean, he's yeah. he's really all over the place at this point. Well, he wouldn't be so traveling yeah, to I, Asia if he didn't want to run, right? Isn't that that's like the first thing you do to to appear presidential? So you're still in on the on I, the campaign. I agree. Yeah, I think he's still in. But the, you know, these plans come together long, long ago. So perhaps they were put together, you know, six months ago. And here we are. He's on his way. I mean, Governor Youngkin from from Virginia is also traveling overseas sure this week. So it seems to me like yes, that the the plan is still there. But that reaction, and and you know, we're on radio, so it's not a visual uh, medium, but. Everyone that's on the internet this this morning and this afternoon is seeing the look on Ron DeSantis's face, and the only thing I can read from that reaction is he's had quite enough. Yeah, he's really <laughs> sick of being asked this. Uh, mm-hmm. Then again, Glenn Youngkin is not being asked this. Uh, Genie, as Lisa mentioned, they're both uh, touring the region. Glenn Youngkin's actually uh, on official business, meeting with the president of Taiwan on what was uh, termed, at least as a trade mission. Are you reading into that as well? Like Glenn Youngkin's still considering this or is he just doing the business of the, the people of Virginia? I think he's keeping all his options open. He did, uh, we did hear last week or the week before that he was sort of, uh, you know, going to tamp down a bit on the idea that he might run. But, you know, I think he has the benefit, unlike Ron DeSantis, of not being at the top of the challenge Donald Trump, you know, peak there. It's not a good place to be, as Jeb Bush can tell us. And so this has been a real challenge for Ron DeSantis. But, you know, he made his own bed. This is a guy who's talking about putting prisons next to Disney. You know, this was not a forced, you know, this is a, this was not a forced error. He's doing it to himself. So, you know, it's, it's astonishing to me that when we look at somebody who won in a difficult state by 19 points, he is very bad at this so far. So we, you know, we, you know, granted Barack Obama had his own challenges when he came out in 2007 and it took him a while and there is a learning curve and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But he is being slammed by somebody who is very good at this, and that's Donald Trump. And I'm looking at these polls. I haven't seen Donald Trump with less than a double-digit lead going back months now. In fact, the NBC poll at 15 is probably the smallest lead he's (laughs) had. The Harvard-Harris the other day had him leading 35 points. So it's an astonishing lead. He's declared DeSantis isn't, but DeSantis has to make up some room here and do it quickly. So, Lisa, you mentioned uh, Chris Christie's campaign, or I guess lack thereof even at that point. He hadn't announced yet. But he was never shy of call, for calling out Donald Trump. He was never afraid to name him, to go for the one-liner. And Ron DeSantis is criticized for not doing that. So what would be your, your New Jerseyan advice for the gentleman from Florida when it comes to getting into a street fight with Donald Trump? It's time to take a punch. <laughs> I mean, really, maybe maybe he doesn't have it in him. And if he doesn't have it in him, then he's not going to be the candidate. I mean, that's where yeah. my head is, Joe. I mean, Chris Christie, it, you know, he 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 paved the way for the Donald Trumps of the world. And uh-huh. and that's that's what I've said. You've heard me say it before. He was he was Donald Trump before there was a Trump. He right. was authentic. He was breaking the mold. He was saying what he was saying. And it really did pave the way for Donald Trump's candidacy, much to probably Chris Christie's chagrin. But uh-huh. if you're Governor DeSantis, it's time to um, it's time to make a decision about what you're going to do, whether or not it's at the end of this uh, trip or otherwise. He needs to figure out if he's getting in the race. It's time for him to to throw a punch. Throw a punch, says Lisa Camusa Miller. The headline I started with here, Jeannie, is pretty remarkable, though. 70% of them, here's your big picture, at least in this NBC poll, and it's consistent with others. 70% of Americans, including more than half of Democrats, still believe Joe Biden should not run for re-election. 60% of Americans, including a third of Republicans, feel the same way about Donald Trump. But this is the race, isn't it? This is the race, and it's probably the race we're going to see. I have to say, Lisa is a Jersey girl. He should listen to Lisa. She's tough. She knows what she's saying. Right. She could teach him how to take some punches. But, you know, you're absolutely right. People don't want, they don't really want Joe Biden to run. Age is a huge concern. We saw the New York Times editorial over the weekend, the Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal. Joe Biden is going to have to address these things. But in my mind, this is why Joe Biden and Donald Trump cannot quit each other. They both want to go up against <laughs> this again. 
again. And for Joe Biden, if there is no Donald Trump, I don't think he is going to have much of a wow. candidacy. So that's what they are, I think, both hoping for a repeat. And the rest of us would like to run away from it. Uh, God knows. Yes. Uh, Lisa, Joe Biden and Donald Trump need each other. Is there a lane for someone else here? We only have 30 seconds. I mean, I think that's what the polls are showing us, that they're desperate. Everybody's desperate for someone other than these two. But I think Jeannie's right. I mean, they are tied together. Yeah. Wow. Our panel back with some final thoughts next. Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camuso Miller with us on Bloomberg Radio. But have you thought about Donald Trump's nephew. He goes just as Trump's nephew. Maybe you know him as the mayor of Magaville. The father of MAGA rap has endorsed Donald Trump. You didn't see this headline? It's next. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So much talk about the campaign this hour, I still have not mentioned. Forgiato Blow. Trump's nephew? You don't know Forgiato Blow? He's the face of what's become known as MAGA rap. And by face, I mean face tattoos. Vice News gave him the treatment in a recent profile. Trump's a boss. I'm a boss. Trump's got the hate. I got the hate. Trump had the girls. I got the girls. Yeah, Trump's got the it. money. I'm getting the money. Right. Yeah, Mar-a-Lago, you feel me? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like MAGA's grown bigger than Trump. And they say us, this is a grift. But how can I grift something I created? Well, that is a question. But he's gearing up for another campaign. And yes, we can tell you today on Bloomberg Radio that for Giotto Blow, whose Twitter handle is Trump's nephew, has endorsed his uncle once again. He even held an event of sorts with Roger Stone and joined Forgiato, real name Kurt Jans, in front of Forgiato's custom-painted Rolls Royce that includes a picture of Richie Rich. Oh, yeah. oh no, we can't go in like that. Now, this is where you're glad that this is radio and not TV. As Roger Stone wearing sunglasses, shirt and tie, nice dress slacks, a nice crease, attempts to dance to this anthem. While Forgiato lip syncs his own rap. Now, I was not an aficionado of MAGA rap. Before researching this piece, I don't know if Jeannie or maybe Lisa were. Uh, Jeannie Shanzano, any love for Trump's nephew? Well, you got blow. Joe, he's got songs. No vaccine, not yeah. my president, See? Rush Limbaugh, impeach <laughs> us, Patriot Keys. So, you know, a lot I know about Forgiato Blow, Joe. And the, the video <laughs> You're with Roger there, Stone dancing mm-hmm. is something I wish I could unsee, but it wasn't possible. Lisa, we, we're out of time, but does this help Donald Trump or is this like, like a casualty of Donald Trump? I mean, everything helps Trump, Joe. I mean, really, it, it, I, I, I can't see anything that ever ends up being a handicap for him. What does so, not kill him as, makes him stronger. Lisa Camuso Miller and Jeannie Shanzano, our great panel, as always. Thanks to both of you. Kaylee's on the way next. Hour two starts right now. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington along with Kaylee Lines, And this apparently is the week, Kaylee, or so we hope that we actually get the X date 
and we can check that box and move on with our lives here with, with a more informed conversation. Well, I guess it's move on with our lives to what? More drama about to a more how we avoid defaulting yes. by the ex state? Right. Because, of course, this also is the week that, in theory, should Speaker McCarthy get his way, he will bring his bill to the floor of the House yep. and get the 218 votes he need it, needs to really have an opening salvo with the White House and get President Biden to the negotiating table on some kind of agreement on raising the debt ceiling. But, of course, the White House has held pretty firm on that. So even once we get the X date, the question is, are we any closer to finding a solve? Pretty sure it was Jack Fitzpatrick uh, from Bloomberg government who said last week, told us last week that once they arrive at the date, once we figure that out, it may already be too late Mm. to avoid what could be coming here. Mick Mulvaney must be wondering if we're ever going to ask him about anything else. (laughs) Former OMB director, former U.S. Special Envoy for for Northern Ireland, of course, former acting White House Chief of Staff, co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus. I could keep going all day here. Mick, you've got a heck of a business card, and welcome back. Uh, as I know you're joining us from overseas, so s- thanks for staying up late with us here. Do you believe that Kevin McCarthy, who who you know pretty well, would bring this bill to the floor unless he knew he had 218? No, no, especially if it's this early, Joe. Keep in mind, we talk about that date. I've always thought, I've, I've told you folks before, I think the date is in July, mm. um, that when Janet Yellen came out months ago and said it was June, I, I didn't believe that. Uh, I, it, tough votes in Washington, D.C. get taken right before Christmas. And right before the August recess. So the date is probably going to be July. And now that the receipts are coming in, we'll probably get confirmation of that. So he doesn't have to do it right now because we're not bumping up against it. But if he's got the votes, he's going to the floor. I don't care what the bill looks like. And at this point, the question is, can Kevin pass something with 218? Because if he does, um, and if it comes to a vote, I think he will. If he does, then it puts it squarely on Chuck Schumer's shoulders over in the Senate. And that's what that's what the House wants to do. They want to be able to say, we've passed a bill. Now, what do you want to do in the Senate? Um, the Senate will hem and haw as they always do. But that's going to be the dynamic here. Can Kevin get 218 for anything and get it over to the Senate mm-hmm. anytime before July? Well, I guess it will wait to see if that July date is actually confirmed, because I've been reading a lot of research from those on Wall Street who are taking a look at those tax receipts from the Treasury, pointing out how much weaker they are relative uh, to 2022 levels and saying "Mm, that date might be a little bit sooner, which would just make Mm. it even more go time uh, for leadership in both chambers, frankly, as you point out, Mick. This will, in theory, go to the Senate if McCarthy does have success in passing it. But the Senate and the White House have been very clear on where they stand on this. They do not want to negotiate. Do you really think they're going to blink first? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, they almost have to, right? I mean, look, if you've you stopped to think about it. Why do you have a law that says you have to vote on raising the debt ceiling if there isn't some type of negotiation? If it's always just a blank check or a rubber stamp, then there's no reason to have a law at all that requires this. So I think the Republicans, although they always get blamed for shutdowns and 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 spending issues and so forth and of course it's never been a default so never been blamed for that although folks are quick to try and blame them for anticipatory uh, defaults that if they do pass something that's reasonable then it does put it squarely on the democrats i think there's a chance here that that kevin can move it over move the, the hot potato over into somebody else's hands but to your point on this not just being a blanket increase that doesn't need to sign off that there is you know by default room built in for negotiation we don't always see negotiations on this though if we look back at the administration you served out under this was just raised multiple times without all of this so how can it be both and <laughs> no, that's a great question republicans at, at, come election time are going to have to they've lost the moral high ground in many ways on spending there's no question they didn't do as much as we could have we didn't do as much as we could have when we control the house and the senate and the white house there's no question about that but that's not driving the debate right now what's driving the debate right now is whether or not what comes out of the house is reasonable okay and whether or not the ordinary person would look at it and go eh, that kind of makes some sense and you know what from what i'm understanding the package includes things like work requirements for welfare payments this is extraordinarily popular because most people think you should probably try and do that. But, you know, try and get a job before you get a, a government welfare check. That's the type of thing that if the, if the Republicans are smart here, they can move that hot potato over to the Democrats. It's, it's going to be hard for them to do. They've not done it successfully many, many times in the past. But the opportunity does exist if they can pass something out of the House with 218 votes that doesn't look like it's a right wing nut job package.
As, as someone who's been there, Mick, uh, it, when you hear about arguing over 30 versus 20 hours work requirement or which components of the IRA do we want to target here, does that sound like nibbling around the edges, like like Kevin McCarthy is, is close to, to bringing it, the, the caucus in on this? That's exactly what it is. There, there's some folks will say, look, I'll, I'll go 20, I'll go 25, I won't go 30. That, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. And that's a good sign for Kevin, by the way, because it means he's close to the finish line. The simple yeah. fact that you were hearing about a potential vote now in late April and not in May or June um, means that he thinks he's close to having the votes he needs. How fragile do you think his position is as speaker, even if he does get the votes? If it is this difficult, what is that uh, kind of signal about his leadership? Well, the, the first signal is good because nobody thought or a lot of folks thought he couldn't get 218 votes anyway uh, mm-hmm. to pass the deal. They thought he had given too much to the hardcore right wing to get elected a speaker in the first place that he could never cobble together the 218. There was too much division in the party itself. So the simple fact he can pass anything helps him. But your point is a good one when it comes to the next round, when you when you sort of play the chess match out and say, OK, the House passes something. The Senate's going to have to pass something that's bipartisan. It's a 60 vote requirement in the Senate, which means it's going to have to have bipartisan support. What does the vote look like then in the House on that on the next move of the chess pieces? That, I think, speaks more to whether or not Kevin's how, what Kevin's, Kevin's leadership will look like going forward than this first vote. So when we do get an X date. Uh, Mick, whether it's June or July, and I realize those are two uh, very different things here. Does it light the fire for the White House? They see Kevin McCarthy passes a bill, then we get an X date. Suddenly there's a meeting on the calendar. Uh, no, I, I really don't. I, I think it goes to the Senate, and I, I may be a, in the minority on that, the small minority on that. But, I mean, face it, uh, Chuck Schumer wants to be involved. You know Mitch McConnell wants to be involved. And the White House really they're not that active the president is not that popular he doesn't have a lot of political capital to play with right now um Mm -hmm. and he's you know he's not even taking live interviews anymore i understand he's going to announce by video that he's running for re-election sometime this week so the president while he's still a president there's no question about that i think that the energy is over in the senate and i'd be looking there first um in terms of the negotiation between mcconnell and schumer before i start looking to mccarthy with biden Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm glad you raised the fact that the current president is planning, we think, to soft launch his his reelection campaign for 2024. What do you make of that timing, especially given the ongoing conversation around the debt ceiling and potentially a looming default that we're having currently? Yeah, it's not the timing that gets my attention as much as the method. Um, I've been overseas. I'm over here for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Accords, and I got asked a bunch of questions by European press as to why Biden didn't do a press conference. Um, and it's a really, really tough question to answer. The easiest press conference for a president to do is of a bilateral international meeting because you get to pick who the journalists are and you almost get to pick the questions. And the fact that Biden didn't give that interview is, is very telling. And now we go forward and understand he's going to give his announcement for re-election for president via video. That, to me, speaks a lot louder than the timing. We can get into the timing and whether or not the Democrats were getting antsy on whether or not he would do it, whether or not somebody like Gavin Newsom or somebody else was itching to sort of go if Biden didn't. Um, but I pay more attention to the method and not the calendar. Isn't that what everyone does now, though? You drop a video on Twitter. Even we, we, we had a Trump video in anticipation of the speech, but that wasn't a news conference either, was it? Uh, maybe. At least it was live. I mean, at least he <laughs> okay. got up and gave a speech. OK, that's um, fine. So, no, yeah. We're know, looking I, at new data is, today, it, uh, Mick. I'm sure you saw this, the, the latest from NBC News. And this is not a huge sample. I do want to be careful with this. I think there's a margin of error beyond five points. But it's consistent with the trends that we've seen, the big picture trends. Seventy percent of Americans think Joe Biden should not run for reelection. As soon as you finish groaning, you realize that 60 percent of Americans, including a third of Republicans, do not think Donald Trump should run. Isn't that just a wide open lane for someone? Yeah. And I'm in the I'm in the wish there was somebody other than Trump category. I mean, I guess it's it's by the way, it's more than a third of Republicans. Um, Mm. It's probably two thirds of Republicans if you get right down to it. Um, But I I do think um, and maybe this is a longer discussion for another day. You're looking at a historic opportunity that maybe we haven't seen in 40 years possibly a century, where a truly viable third-party candidate 
could have a chance. I'm not talking about a, a recycled politician from one of the other parties. I'm talking or, or one of the, the existing parties. I'm talking about, I don't know, a celebrity, a business person. Um, this it really is a unique circumstance where a, I think a majority of Americans are looking their hands over and going, eh, no thanks on these two. What else have you got? And ordinarily, we don't have anything. But this year, you never can tell. It's going to be a very, very interesting next 18 months. God knows it. Well, I, I'm wondering who, if you think there is a third party candidate that could potentially be in there somewhere. Is there any specific names that you have in mind, Mick? Are you hearing any rumors? <laughs> No, no rumors. I, 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 the, the one name I always throw out there and people sort of raise an eyebrow and giggle a little bit. And then they think to themselves, wow, that that actually makes a lot more sense than I realize is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But I understand he's not <laughs> interested in running. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. See, he Joe could, even sort of giggles as well. But he could make it then. I know I totally I'm yeah. behind you on that one. This is the world that we're in right now. If you're going to if you're going to out celeb Donald Trump. Then that's a way to go, as opposed to out bullying him or whatever, I guess. And I know that you're no uh, stranger to all of this, Mick. He even turned his fire uh, on you, uh, on on truth or whatever <laughs> recently. I mean, it's just, I don't know what inspired that, but it does make you wonder, uh, what is in his mind when he picks up his phone? I'm sure you've thought that before. Yeah, I, I, have, I have. I've stopped guessing at that a long time ago. I don't think... Um, you know, he did give a speech, I guess, over the weekend, and he he said that he was going off off the teleprompter. Um, you know, which, and Donald Trump's done that forever. He's he's always best when he's winging it as opposed to reading a teleprompter. But the simple fact he said he was going off the teleprompter tells me something. I've never heard those words out of his mouth, by the way, hmm. that he realizes that his rollout was flat um, and that his speech after his indictment was flat. And he knows he's not hitting on all all eight cylinders yet. So um, it's an admission of weakness that, uh, of course, he would never admit to that admission of weakness. But to those of us who know him, that to simply say he was going off the teleprompter is in itself saying he's got to do something different going <laughs> forward. It. So yeah. um, it's a very, very interesting development. Well, as we talk about Trump off teleprompter, he also did a recent long sit-down interview with one Tucker Carlson, who we learned today is departing Fox News. Though Fox and Tucker Carlson agreeing to part ways, we don't really know uh, why. But of course, the audience of Tucker Carlson tonight we know is highly engaged. 3.3 million viewers it averaged in 2022. He's seen as you know a real conservative commentator that has a lot of influence within this base, Mick. I mean, what what do you think the impact is of Tucker Carlson it's being taken off air? I mean, I'm overseas in the Tucker Carlson story, along with a Don Lemon story at CNN are making news as well. So it's mm. been just it's sort of a a huge earthquake within the, the cable news network when those two folks are off of the air uh, suddenly. Um, I can't help but ask. I don't know Tucker well, but I, I can't help but wonder whether or not he would love to have that interview of Donald Trump over again that he did last week um, that was full of softball questions and Trump talking for you know 40 minutes or so um, now that, that Tucker's gone. so um, But I have no idea what's going on in the world of cable news. That's not my specialty. Um, all I know is that um, you know Trump... If he doesn't have Fox in his pocket like he did in 2016 and 2020, is going to have to find another way to get his message out for free. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Mick, you, you know more cable news bookers and uh, producers <laughs> than most Americans ever will. Did these two networks coordinate? How do you get these both in the same day? No, no, I, I, I don't think so. I, I have no idea. Uh, I do know some folks at CNN. I know some folks at Fox. And I think... Uh, Everybody I've talked to in the last hour or so is just as surprised as you are. So, no, I, listen, politics is in a strange place right now in the, in the, in the, in the United States of America in 2023. And cable news is, uh, is, uh, is inextricably entwined with that, that, that craziness. It all happened before the geek prom this week, Mick. Every, I'll, I'll get, get all your stuff out before the prom, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what the geek prom is. Oh, jeez, come on. We're going to miss you at the correspondence dinner. Nerd prom. Oh, is that? Yeah, There's no, only one real that, so. prom here in Washington. No. Mick, thank you. Uh, get home safe. Mick Mulvaney with us from overseas. You're going to the prom, right? I am. Yeah, that's the nerd prom. <laughs> Everyone will be looking at photos of it Sunday morning. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lyons. Yes, that's the real name for it. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We both still have jobs, which I guess today is something that you have to state. Uh, Kaylee, it's good <laughs> to see you here at work today. Because, boy, I mean, they're just clearing out cable news. Who's next? I don't know. I'm afraid to ask. Yeah, I mean, Tucker Carlson's out at Fox. Mm -hmm. Don Lemon's out at CNN. CNN. I do have to wonder, and you asked the question earlier, Joe, was this coordinated? Well, I, I mean, they came or is within, this just the world's wildest coincidence that I, both of these were be, announced the same day? But but even within hours uh, yeah. before at least they got into the, the news cycle here. But pretty amazing that, of course, the, the Fox move follows uh, the settlement last week with yep. Dominion. $787 million. Remarkable. And there, boy, the stock is down again today on this. So com- the combined impact of the settlement and the loss, we'll say, or firing, whatever it is, of Tucker Carlson, was it's been an expensive week for Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, the market reaction to the news of Tucker Carlson's departure has, in fact, been even more dramatic than it that? was to news of that settlement. Most popular show on the with network, Dominion, right? second most watched show in cable news last year. <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show you what a moneymaker ultimately say what you yep. want about what he actually said on the oh, program. Sure. But he had a highly engaged audience and Absolutely. a lot of eyeballs on him, and that translates into dollars for network. You know, cable networks. Mick Mulvaney mentioned uh, earlier his interview with Donald Trump. Well, you brought it up first, but mm-hmm. Mick seemed to think that he might do that differently now. Is it that must have gotten a lot more criticism than I figured? I think, gosh, it's Tucker. That's what you get. Right. But following the interview, that that was a pretty easy uh, sort of layup for Donald Trump. There he is. There's Tucker out on the beach at Mar-a-Lago, his mm-hmm. hair blowing in the wind, <laughs> and he effectively endorsed him uh, in in the campaign. Maybe that was part of the issue. I have no idea, but I suspect he'll find a home here. Don Lemon is a completely different circumstance, but boy, they dropped like within an hour of each other today. As you can imagine, there were a lot of murmurs in the newsroom. Yeah, well, you know, what the heck is going on around here? Lincoln Mitchell is with us uh, from the School of International and Public Affairs and the Political Science Shop at Columbia University. Writes a popular substack on politics and baseball, God love him, called kibitzing with Lincoln. We're going to kibitz right now with Mr. Mitchell. Lincoln, it's great to have you. We just spent some time with Mick Mulvaney talking about the debt ceiling, and we'd like to start with you there. Unless you want to weigh in, of course, on this whole cable news thing. Maybe you've got a new job at CNN, but it does seem like uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy thinks he'll have the votes. If he doesn't have them now, he will by Wednesday or Thursday when this bill gets to the floor. If they can pass this, how different does this whole debate feel? Well, substantively, it doesn't feel very different because it's not getting out of the Senate and Biden is not going to sign this Republican deal. It is politically a victory for McCarthy because mm-hmm. if he can't pass it, if, he show, if it shows he can't even herd these cats that is the Republican caucus on what is largely a symbolic issue because it's not going to be turned into law, he's in bad shape. He, can, he must go into any negotiation with the president saying, I have my caucus unified behind me. Well, you so say he... That, he and must go up. into negotiation with the president, but the president has repeatedly said he doesn't want to negotiate over this. He'll talk about the budget, but not the debt ceiling. Doesn't it just feel like two stubborn bulls? And who moves well, first? I mean, my sense is ultimately they were going to have to negotiate about this. It does feel like two stubborn politicians, but you know, this is this is a really substantively important issue, which is how are we going to pass a budget, right? How do we, as a, as a major you know national government, pass a budget? One answer is you have a budget process. You sign that budget into law, there's some compromise, no one walks away completely happy, and that's mm-hmm. how we usually do it. And the other is you revisit that with this debt ceiling, which just creates problems. If you don't like debt, which Republicans don't like when a Democrat is in power, 
then address it in the budget process. It's a second bite at the apple, so you can understand this sets a very bad precedent uh, for any present times of divided government that you get to keep going back on. So I think that's where Biden is coming from. Okay. Uh, with that said, there's still going to be this is going to end up in a deal, uh, Lincoln. And this was the new Republican majority in the House that said no more backroom deals. I know people are getting tired of me say this, but it was regular order. It was transparency. And now this will be done in a back room either way, whether it's favors one end of Pennsylvania Avenue or the other. Right. I'm inclined to agree with you. But another word for backroom deals in that context would be governance. Right. <laughs> the way we. I mean, that's just how countries govern. You have to have the leadership of the legislature. It doesn't have to be one person, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, in this case, Chuck Schumer, Kevin McCarthy, Joe Biden walk into a room, come out with a deal. Yeah, sure. It could be five or six people from each House of Congress, some other people in the administration. But ultimately, a small group has to make the deal. Now, how much of that has to be transparent? Well, the results are obviously transparent. But to say we're not going to make any deals is akin to saying we're not going to try to govern. And that has been a critique that many have wow. tacked onto the Republican Party. Well, why have all these great. committees and all these guys walking around on Capitol Hill? We just need to, just a couple of them to do that, right? Well, no, because that's not how the budget process works, right? The budget process is a long process with a lot of input, a lot of, you know, the Appropriations Committee, the Agriculture right. Committee hearing from... But they've been cut out of this, haven't they? Not, they've been cut out of this, this negotiation of the debt ceiling, yes. Because the debt ceiling, this is... This is you know, imagine, you know, I mean, I don't like to make household analogies for government. I think they're very weak. Mm-hmm. But if you agree within your household that we're going to buy X thousand dollars worth of goods or, and we're going to borrow, you know, three thousand dollars to do it, you don't go back two weeks later and say, by the way, you know what? I've decided I don't want to repay that three thousand dollars. Right. This is this is different than the budget process. This is a formality. There shouldn't be a debt ceiling. If you borrow mm-hmm. the money, if you put in the budget, you should pay it. I, I do and understand that, but Kaylee, Kevin McCarthy has said that we're not just talking about the debt ceiling. Right. we got to do both. Yeah, that he wants spending cuts to come with this or no deal, That's right, basically. Because, because, because he wants this to be about crafting a budget. Hmm. He wants a second bite at the apple of crafting a budget, which, look, from a strategic perspective, you could certainly understand why he's doing this, right? He doesn't have a lot of votes. He didn't get the budget he wanted. There are still people in his caucus he doesn't, who are worried about him, who he needs to secure. It's an opportunity to do it. It's kind of a, a way that in the long run sets a very bad precedent, but it's not irrational on his part. But you can also understand Biden's position, which is we can't do it this way because this is not how functioning governments make budgets. I, I guess it becomes a question, Lincoln, of, of the strength of the positions through that both of them come to this with, because we know that Speaker McCarthy had a very difficult time even becoming Speaker, that maybe his leadership is a bit fragile. But also you have President Biden, who we understand, we all expect, based on the reporting from multiple outlets, will be soft launching another presidential campaign this week, saying he wants to seek reelection in 2024. And I feel like doesn't that change his positioning and his approach to this as well? Because you don't want to be running for president with a, a default potentially uh, hung with your name, right? Well, certainly. On the other hand, we should be realistic. Then President Biden is expected to make this announcement sometime this week. I've heard Tuesday, I've heard Wednesday, we don't know for sure. But at least most of us, at least I've certainly been saying for a long time, he was always going to run for re-election. It's not like he woke up last week and made a decision, right? Mm-hmm. This was always part of his calculus. His calculus here is that if this, if we have to, if there is a problem here, if we have to shut down the government, there is a default, we're not going to default, but if we have to shut down the government or something like that, the Republicans will get blamed. They always do, right? Public opinion always goes against Republicans at a time like this. Not that he wants this. And he also says, if I can stand tough and secure these things, then on the substance, I've got the Republicans in a bad position. Now, the Republicans are rolling the dice here and saying, if we can win this negotiation, we can show that the president is weak, we can deliver something to our base. So, so they're both playing politics here, and both of them have, look, Biden, you know, at, at very best, I think we would all agree, is going to be a close re-election campaign for Biden. This is not Ronald Reagan going into 1984. Mm-hmm. And McCarthy could lose his speakership at any minute. So for both of these guys holding on to their jobs, is absolutely front and center. So it's not they're not Thelma and Louise in the car heading for the cliff right now. They're not going to hold hands and drive over this thing together. No, I might to, to mix metaphors here. They might be Thelma and Louise playing chicken and driving the car into each other. Okay. <laughs> well, if that said, and and someone needs to blink here, I think Kaylee asked that a bit earlier. It's not going to be Joe Biden the week he's soft launching or whatever we're calling his campaign here, right? And uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to stand strong based on what happens in the House, and so we lose another week. And we're going to get an X date at some point here, Lincoln, and there's there's not going to be a lot of time for fooling around. 
but there's there's also is some there's some a little bit of nuance here, right? On the one hand, Kevin McCarthy does have 218 votes for for the for whatever deal he cuts because the Democrats will support him if he if he chooses a little bit of compromise here, right? He also doesn't necessarily. I mean, there is. Wait, so you think he can pull a few Democrats in on this? Is that what you're saying? No, I think he could cut the, the deal that's always been open to any Republican is to get a lot of the Democrats and a handful of Republicans to get something more moderate, right? This was this could have been the path to his speakership on the second ballot if he'd wanted it, wow. right? Um, the but but so 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 that so it's not it's not quite that that simple. The other thing is that remember, you know, he has said, but he's had to say it, which is very telling. I have the 218 votes to pass my bill. Can you yeah. imagine? Nancy Pelosi, back when she was speaker, having to go on television and say, I can deliver my caucus, right? Just that (laughs) you have to say that is a sign of weakness. Yeah. Will he bring it to the floor without the votes? Or does he, do you know that he's got 218 when he schedules it? Well, I think I was on your show, not your show, but your network uh, at the end of last year talking about the speakership race. And I said, there's no way he goes to a vote without the, a vote without having the votes. And he did. Yeah. We know how that one works. I don't know that Kevin McCarthy is, you know, this isn't Mitch McConnell, who really knows how to count the votes, or Nancy Pelosi, who really knows how the institution works. I think he's doing a little bit of the seat of the pants, which means if he goes to the floor, he probably has the 218, but it's not money in the bank. Great to talk to you. Lincoln, don't be a stranger. Lincoln Mitchell, back with us uh, from Columbia University. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.